This is Restless. Welcome back to Restless, a post-mortem on the young, restless, and reformed. I am your host, Matt, joining you, and I am joined by, as always, Pastor Michael. Michael, how are you doing? You know, I'm doing well. We are uh, on... Uh, baby watch in the Bowman household. We've got uh, a baby on the way shortly. And so it's, it's baby, baby season, which means, you know, fill in the freezers with easy meals, uh, you know, making sure all the last minute things that we need done are done. And uh, so pray, pray a blessing for pastor Michael and his family. It's possible. I don't exactly know when this episode will come out. The baby could have been born maybe uh, by the time you're hearing this. And so yeah, we're thankful to uh, get this recorded. And so uh, another life circumstance that I think we have been given a great opportunity to is Pastor Michael at our church, as our church is preaching through the book of Romans, just preached uh, through a few weeks ago to, for the last three weeks and with a break through the Romans chapter nine. Um, and, and as well up here in the upper Midwest, we started to see the beautiful end of spring. Uh, and it and it coming, which allowed us to end winsome winter and start with Jesus and John Wayne week, which, you know, you've all loved so much. Um, however, we've had another cold snap. And so perhaps we're going to do something a bit a bit more winsome today. So we are going to walk through winsome winter. It's just never going to end, is it? It's a- <laughs> well, no, I think this might be the last cold snap. We're going to walk through and we'll see how winsomely we do it, right? The weather's changing a lot, so our moods could change as we do this podcast. <laughs> this, is, this is Wisconsin. So some days it's 70 degrees and yeah. just two days later, it is 17. So right. uh, that actually happened this past week. Um, we just, sometimes that's how winsome winter works. That's right. And so we are going to be uh, walking through some of the most common objections to Romans 9. So if, if you are at all familiar with the YRR, um, you know that Romans 9 is a passage of particular uh, interest to people who believe in a Calvinistic doctrine of election, and we'll ask Pastor Michael why that is, why that particular passage gets a lot of focus, and we're going to do so because a rapper who you might know named Flame, he was a Reformed Baptist, he was not quite on the level of popularity of Lecrae or Tadashi, but Again, he was, uh, he was in these circles. He has left uh, being a Reformed Baptist. He is now a confessional Lutheran, at least as the last I saw. And he recently uh, posted a long thread critiquing the views of, of Romans 9 that he had known. And I thought he uh, fairly, yeah, fairly clearly communicated some of them some of the classic objections to it that it might be worth us walking through here. Great. Yeah. This sounds like fun. Um, shout out to any of our confessional Lutheran listeners. We know right. that there's some of you out there. <laughs> and we, and we actually think that, and if you're a confessional Lutheran listener, you can tell us perhaps if this is right or wrong. I think he is getting a lot of this from Lenski and his uh, New Testament commentaries. I think this is close to his take. So you can tell me if I'm right or wrong about that. But that's a little inside baseball as we cover some classic objections to Romans 9. Pastor Michael, before we go to his thread, I'm sure our listeners know this because they were YRR or they're listening to a podcast on Reformed theology, at least. 
What is the Calvinistic interest particularly in, in Romans 9? Why is this such a, why is there so much debate around this passage? Why would James White fly anywhere in the world to debate anyone on this passage, no matter what their name is? Uh, what's, what's the interest in Romans 9 uh, for Calvinistic theology particularly? Yeah, so uh, Romans 9 is uh, important because it deals with the doctrine of election. Um, so, you know, um, you know, Paul even says in, in Romans 9, 11, though they were not yet born and had done uh, nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Um, so you see here, even the, the very idea of election, I mean, we have the the, the word itself um, being used and uh, dealing with the with issues of election, of predestination, uh, more generally, um, this is uh, one of the kind of go-to texts a lot of the time uh, for Calvinists to say, look, this is what the Bible teaches, that God chooses some for uh, salvation, to have compassion on some, while at the same time he hardens some and he uh, chooses not to have that same compassion on others. Mm. And so the reason, obviously, then the Calvinists are particularly interested in it is if uh, your what you're saying about election can't kind of stand up to what Paul says in Romans nine. We know whatever you're saying about election is probably not the case, right? That this is kind of a good litmus test passage. Yeah, it's definitely it's one of the clearer passages. It seems, at least, I know it's much debated. So to say it's a clear passage is maybe going to sound funny to some people. But as far as like directly addressing the topic yes, of that's, God's that's to sovereign it. will, um, you know, and eternal will and salvation um, outside of the you know choices of individuals, um, mm. this this is one of those passages that that speaks to these things very very seemingly clearly compared to others. I think the other reason uh, why are our guys like it, probably reasons I like it. Now, I don't think we're going to find this with Flame, who is not this, is a lot of times when we tell someone we believe in election or predestination, the precise objections they make sound like the objector that Paul imagines in Romans 9. Yeah, uh, this is one of the one of those, uh, you know, things that we'll probably bring up as we walk through these objections to a Calvinist reading of uh, Romans 9, because often uh, the Calvinists, the non-Calvinist objection to how Calvinists read Romans 9 follows right along uh, the arguments that are being made uh, against Paul and what he right. is saying. And it, so um, we, we often take that to uh, mean we're on the right path. Yeah, and it, it's, it, it truly should be, right? If, if you explain election and the first things people say, now, you, again, you could be explaining it poorly. That's, of course, possible. But if the precise objections are, so isn't God unjust if this is true? Or how can he blame anyone for their decisions? If those are the, if those are the immediate two objections, well, when Paul wrote this chapter, he said, I know the two objections that are going to get made when I teach this. Yep. It's these two things. And so, um, so Pastor Michael, I think obviously we could read the whole passage, but perhaps it would be better to start with Flame's a thread, and then we can we can work through particular po uh, points. I was going to say, if you're listening to this right now, um, best thing to probably do is, hey, just click pause, pause mm -hmm. um, open up your Bible app or your Bible if you've got that close, and uh, just read Romans 9, just so it's in your mind, um, it's fresh, 
uh, you kind of have it have it in you uh, because we want to be we want to faithfully walk through Romans nine in a way that you would say yeah like when you read it it's like oh yeah this is obviously um, what the word of God is communicating uh, and so it's best if you know if you actually follow along in the text itself. Is there any uh, particular context you would like to provide though before I begin reading um, Flames uh, Twitter thread? Yeah, so. Um, I don't know if it's best to bring this up now because I think it will kind of, uh, I don't know, predispose some against some of the things that uh, that flame here says. Uh, but I think it maybe it'd be good anyway, just to give maybe a broad uh, contextual point. When you get to Romans 9, you're at a, a brand new um, section of the book of Romans. Now, the book of Romans is very tight in that it, I mean, the argument is very tight. Everything flows out of what came previously um, or, you know, something that came previously anyway. Everything is working out um, kind of Paul's thesis in Romans chapter one that uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe that the righteous shall live by faith. Um, that th this idea that the righteous shall live by faith, uh, that he quotes from the old Testament is kind of like this, this thesis statement that then he unpacks. He, he writes the whole book kind of around this idea, you know, Romans chapter eight is obviously this, uh, kind of climactic passage. It's often thought of as, uh, in the book of Romans where it just, you know, it, it kind of brings this, this chorus from throughout the book together, uh, into this overwhelming reality of, uh, the new life uh, in the spirit of God um, that comes uh, by uh, the righteousness that's given in Christ. Um, it, you know, it obviously ends with uh, just the uh, kind of the incredible, you know, rhetorically just, you know, beautiful statement, uh, you know, about the love of God and uh, how it, uh, we cannot be separated from us. Uh, you know, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Yeah. And then there is a clear uh, change. It's not a change in that it doesn't follow from everything that has gone before. Uh, but in Romans chapter nine, Paul then begins from Romans chapter nine to uh, chapter 11 through the end of chapter 11. Paul deals with uh, a resulting issue uh, that would have arisen in the minds of his hearers, having dealt with the issue that it is not by works of the law, but it is by faith that one is justified. It is by faith that one finds, uh, that is able to receive righteousness, um, not by how they live. This is going to bring up certain questions and problems in the minds of many, especially about the place that Israel holds. Um, if Israel, uh, national Israel was the chosen people of God, whom God made many promises to, uh, promises about you know, adherence to the law and things like this, um, if, if that's the case, then the question is going to arise, well, doesn't this mean that God and his promises have failed? If now, by and large, Israel has rejected uh, that righteousness comes by faith. Right. I think that, right, the way you can think about where does Romans 9 come from, if I were to, you know, that's a great larger contextual reading. If I were to think about it, it right, Romans 8 ends with, for nothing in this life that's can separate right. us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, nor rulers, nor things present, right? Nothing can separate us from the love of our Lord, the God. And so what Jesus about God. Israel? And the, the immediate question is, Paul, a lot of Jews are rejecting this. And yep. you at the beginning just said they were condemned. So if, if it's not even working for them, what, what does that mean? And so I think that that is a, um, that's a great 
that is perhaps the right kind of context. So we hope you've now read Romans 9. So we are now going to begin reading uh, Flame's Twitter thread. We will post a link to it in the show notes. Um, Flame, maybe you'll hear this, maybe you won't, probably not. Love to have you on the show, I guess. Here we go. I joined a Reformed Baptist Calvinist church and attended a Bible study there. One of my professors led the study. He explained to us that he'd been teaching on election and predestination. I was excited and a bit scared, if I'm honest. We isolated the chapter and dealt with it as if Paul's intentions with Romans 9 was to teach the doctrine of predestination and double predestination. That was wrong and not Paul's intention. Romans 9 should be considered in light of the entire book, and in particular, chapters um, 10 and 11. Paul is building the case that we are justified by faith and not by works, nor does salvation come through the bloodline, but by faith. He draws a few Old Testament figures to make his point. Abraham, Isaac, Rebekah, Jacob, Esau, and Pharaoh, to name a few. He uses this, these figures to make his point that there is an Old Testament precedent for his line of reasoning, that God chooses not on the basis of works or lineage, but by grace. And then we'll get to his next section. He continues his point, but it's kind of related to actually the next section. So, so Pastor Michael, he has two kind of objections to how this was taught. First, it was taught as if it is a standalone tract, not connected to the rest of scripture. And that Paul's primary point he's making here is justification by faith and not works of law. What can we make with, of these two things? I think one thing we can grant is that Whatever the reading of it is, and again, I don't know, you know, we're not going to call him out or whoever led his Bible study or whoever this professor was. You, I'm sure, would say, Pastor Michael, that chapter 9 goes with 10 and 11, that this is a, this is a somewhat united piece of Paul's argument. Yeah, it, it goes with uh, 10 and 11. It also goes with the rest of the book of Romans, right? right? And so the- How wide the fact do you need you, the context to be? Yeah, the whole yeah thing, you, I mean, or... you want that context to understand the, the flow of the argument. Um, the fact that he points out that, you know, um, uh, you know, some were teaching this as if Paul's point uh, was to teach the doctrine of predestination and, and double predestination. We'll get into why that is. It's a partial truth, um, but he's right to say that um, or at least to you know infer at this point that to jump right into Romans 9 just to teach this one particular doctrine is very often done in a way mm-hmm. where it strips it of its context. Huh. And I think that is to uh, you know our detriment when we do that because the, the fullness of what Romans chapter 9 speaks about, right? You know, so how many people just know this as, oh yeah, that's a predestination chapter. That's how I would Man, like, it. yeah, I know that's right. That's how we know it. Um, there's so much more right there. It mm. is so rich. And the argument that Paul is making is so detailed and careful. Um, even the way that he makes the argument is so detailed and careful. Um, the categories that he uses to explain these things, it's, it is, it's marvelous, right? It, it mm. absolutely is marvelous. And if you just use it as like, Hey, well, this, like this passage is just my go-to for this one particular topic. And that's it. Yeah. I think that does, in a way, blind you to the, the richness of the text. So that's one thing I can say. I think he's right that many Calvinists uh, use this as like, oh, yeah, this is just that, that quick proof text that I need. And that's basically what Romans 9 is. 
was right. not actually what Romans 9 is, um, although it does apply, maybe even a way that Flame would not agree to, um, and we can uh, deal with that as so, we move on. So what you're saying is, he, what he is right is Paul did not sit down to say, I am going to explain one of the doc. I need to quickly explain one of the doctrines of Calvinism, right? Or e- That's right, again, yeah. We- but even he but, didn't even you know Paul is not his primary point is not to express um, predestination. I would even be willing to say that, but, but that does become an, an important point in what he's saying because but, his his primary point in yes. what he is trying to do is to explain that the word of God has not failed. This is in uh, verse six of point. chapter nine. It says, uh, "But it is not as though the word of God has hmm. failed." And uh, he says that after explaining all of the blessings that Israel received, right, all of these good things that they received, um, you know, how, uh, you know, they had uh, the, you know, they were Israelites, right, by name, that they had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, uh, they, you know, it was uh theirs are the patriarchs. They come from the patriarchs. And it was among them that the Christ came and from them that the Christ yeah. came. And so uh, there's this, this understand that there are all these many blessings and there's this rich heritage that Paul's spoken of earlier in the book of Romans, um, Mm. where he, you know, says, you know, after saying that all are condemned, right? Jew and Gentile, we're all condemned. And then he says, well, then what benefit is it uh, to be an Israelite? He says much in every way. There's, Mm. there's tremendous benefit in being an Israelite because you had uh, the word of God given to you. You had the promises of God. You had all of these things that were of great benefit to you and were the reason why so many of the Israelites were saved. Uh, but they, at the same time, are not the same thing as saying they were guaranteed. And, and this is an important point because, but what the Calvinist who now is really disappointed that we apparently don't believe in Calvinism. I know, right? <laughs> is there are two things. One, that is Paul's primary point. Yes. He's answering this question. Has the word of God failed? That's his point. But there are two things I think we can say, and I'll see if you agree. His answer to why the word of God has not failed is God's um, eternal purpose. Perhaps we might say by election. And two, even if you would want to say it a little bit differently, even if it is not Paul's primary point in this passage, it doesn't mean it does not directly, the teaching of this passage does not directly apply to our understanding of election, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I would say it, it absolutely is one of his, like one of the sub points, right? So in one of the ways in, he explains in defending it. the promise of God and saying, no, God's promise has not failed even to the Israelites. Um, the word of God has not failed even to the Israelites. One of the sub points he's going to use to back up that statement that the word of God has not failed is God's eternal plan of election and predestination. He's going to use that as one of the points. Now, and he has other points in 10. Point. That's Chapter right. Chapter 10, he has further points. Yeah. Even, even in chapter nine, there's, it's, it's not, there's a kind of a layered meaning, right? It's, it is more than simply predestination, right? Like there's, there's more to it, but that absolutely is one of the points. And so to then say, you know, so this is, you know, when I read this kind of a, uh, a thread, it's like, okay, you came to Romans nine and you recognize that, Hey, the, you know, maybe the reformed Baptist guys I was around, they kind of, they only saw one tiny thing in this passage. And I now see that there's a full context that actually doesn't all relate directly to that point. And then you throw out that point. Sure. And what I would want to say is, wait, 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 wait. Like, don't, don't throw that point out yet. Um, like the Reformed Baptist guys you were around, they weren't wrong that this deals with predestination. Uh, they may have been 
uh, missing much more of the context. Mm. So let's, I think we've, we've covered this uh, on, on potentially that might be the point where we have the most in all of these, we, it might be the place where we have the most uh, agreement with him. Yeah, exactly. So. so the other thing he gets to, and if you have either sat in a seminary class or heard this talked about, a lot of people debate what is the central idea of Romans. And so the only reason I bring that up is here, he says the central point is Paul is, is building his case that we are justified by faith and not be, by works. And he says, so the reason this isn't about predestination is by, about faith by works, right? And now it's unsurprising if he's, you know, in a confessional Lutheran, right? Lutherans are going to say the central, the thing that holds all of Romans together is justification by works, uh, by faith and not by works, right? It's not surprising. And that's a good, tr- again, that's a good true thing. But interesting, we love that Pastor Lutherans. Mike, we love that about you. <laughs> we do. We wholeheartedly agree, even if we don't think that's the central thing being taught. Because Pastor Michael, you giving the context to this, the the question Paul is answering is actually not quite. So how are we justified, right? If the word of God failing or not is a is a again a related question because of what he said about belief. But it is a different question. So what do you make of this idea that this is, it's not being read in context because the context is supposed to be justification by faith? Yeah, so I would, I'm, I'm basically willing to say that justification by faith is more or less the primary mm. point of the book of Romans. I would want to be more careful though. I'd probably say like the main, I, the main idea is that the righteous shall live by faith. Sure. Like that's what I would want to say, right? It's that, uh, that righteousness uh, can only be attained by so, faith um, take, and it, you need to be righteous in order to be justified. Right. So, so it's, it's, it's slightly different, but I'm yeah. willing to like, at least like come to a meeting room and take, say, okay, we can basically agree. Take the W Lutherans. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's great. And um, Calvin, for example, just to give a, there are, you know, there are lots of people who give different summaries. Calvin said the central idea holding it together was union with Christ. So he was trying to broaden the category um, a bit more and obviously not to exclude that again, as we've right. already yep. said, that's part of it. That. Right. But yep. anyway, so I'm willing, Hey, I'm willing, Hey, we get, you know, we can sit around a table and, and uh, you know, at least discuss this at this point, you know um, however, what I would say is once you get to chapter nine uh, this is a subset within that, right? This is a, this is a question that arises out of uh, the reality of justification by faith and the, you know, the unfailing love of God uh, mm-hmm. given in Christ. This is a subset of that, a question then to uh, Paul about how can that be true then when so many in Israel have rejected the gospel and rejected Christ. And Paul's going to give several different reasons why, right? He's going to give yeah. several different reasons why this is the case. Um, not just one, but one of those does happen to be predestination. It happens to be the, the eternal purpose of God's election. And the problem I have with saying that Romans 9, the central idea of Romans 9 is in particular justification by faith. There are two things actually in his thread that I think actually sort of point this out. First, the Old Testament figures Paul uses, Paul has already used uh, Abraham as like, here is the example of faith and how that works. Now, and then we have in Galatians where he says he compares Isaac and Ishmael. And the difference there is, faith 
the difference that he seems to point out with Jacob and Esau, the difference he points out with Pharaoh, these do not seem to be, the point does not seem to be a basis of their faith, but of God's purpose for each of them. Um, and the other thing I find very interesting in Flame's answer is he says, this isn't about predestination. He said, he says, additionally, he said that God chooses not on the basis of works or lineage, but by grace. That to me, we've just used, we've just used the word God's choosing. Mm -hmm. So if this is a, 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 he's admitting this is in part about how God chooses and he's correct. And that's correct. Paul is correcting a way people understood how God chose who would be saved. Yeah. Yeah. But doesn't that put us back at predestination? It does. That's where we're at. It it does. And uh, so like just to, you know, maybe put, uh, you know, a layer of defense on, you know, if you come to the the end of Romans nine, as Paul kind of, you know, kind of recaps things, although I would take it uh, a little bit different and say, he's not just, he is kind of recapping everything, recapping his argument, but also, kind of moving forward a little bit. Um, But he says in uh, verse 30, uh, what shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. So um, you get close to the idea of justification by faith. It's not quite, it's actually different. It's more like, you know, the righteous shall live by faith. Um, So there is a, there is a, there is a difference there, um, but uh, you do get a, generally the idea, right? That yes, okay, so we have Gentiles uh, versus Israel and how, how they sought, uh, you know, sought or did not seek righteousness and how they received it, which was by faith. So that's, it speaks to that issue. Um, and so Paul is kind of summing up some of what he's, you know, uh, set up to that point. Um, however, I think that that is to, again, it's to, it's basically to do what you are saying other people are doing, where you say, well, it's not like people take this passage. They say, well, it's just about predestination. And then they miss the context. Mm-hmm. I think you're doing the same thing. You're picking one little piece and you're actually missing the fuller context that, that what Paul is arguing is not, he's not arguing along the lines of one thing. He's not saying there's one reason why I can say that the word of God has not failed. There's yeah. actually a lot of reasons, you know, there's, mm. there are multiple ways that we can look at this and to understand it and different categories of thought that we can put this into to see how God has not failed. Right. And if, and not that, that, because I think, again, I think flame is a better objector than this. When a person, when, a, if you're, if you're a newer Calvinist, if you're younger than a, even a YRR person, and you're starting to talk about this with your friends, as I think back on these conversations and you say, I believe in election you know, and they say, well, I don't. And we look at Romans nine and they go, that doesn't teach election. What flame is telling you. And what I think this person would have to tell you is when he uses this word choosing and is the person is actually trying to say, I disagree with your explanation of what it means that God is choosing in this passage. And what you can ask that person to do is then you tell me what it means, what God's choosing means in this passage, which I believe flame actually does in his is in the next part of this thread pastor michael is there anything else you want to interact with this before i read the next uh part of his thread though which i think he gives us a little bit of his understanding and it's a common one so it'll be helpful i think no i think i think that's a good good way to move into the next uh item of substance 
So then he says, I wish my professor would have rightly taught us that Romans 9.13, as it is written, Jacob I love, Esau I've hated, was not about their eternal state, nor individual salvation, not to mention later the two bros reconciled, but God's free choice to choose Jacob to be the carrier of the nation of Israel, through whom the Messiah came, as opposed to Esau, who was the carrier of Edom, a wicked nation. Paul assumes people would contend for some injustice in God. That's not fair, they might say, Romans 9, 14, 15. What shall we say then? Is there any injustice in God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So often, one of the alternative views of Romans 9 is that this passage is about nations. This passage is not about individual salvation. So Pastor Michael, you are, you've taught through Romans 9, and I assume you taught that this had some implications for individuals. Yes. Um, yes, I did. And uh, the reality is that this doesn't the argument that, well, this is about nations, not individuals, purely does not actually uh, fully answer the question. Um, and it's not just, uh, well, maybe to back up um, what, what is uh, being kind of fleshed out here uh, is something that can be understood in more than an individualistic kind of way. Mm. Okay. So that, you know, so like, I want to give him that, Hey, yes, there is an element of, of uh, kind of a corporate element uh, that's connected to what Paul is saying. Um, And again, what happens is uh, for some today, what they do is they say, well, um, this has to be just, you know, individual. And then the response is, well, no, look like the context of Malachi, where Paul is quoting this from, well, this has to do with uh, you know, larger groups, corporate mm. groups. Um, and uh, they'll say, so this must deal with nations. Number one, I would say, I don't think you have to dichotomize them quite like that. Um, so I don't think that you have to say um, that because this has an impact on nations or on those who then came from these particular lines, that therefore um, it cannot have something to say to individuals. Because obviously, um, it's quoted as speaking of individuals. And the reality is, if again, it's, it's, not, it's not enough to just say, well, this is talking about you know, who, uh, whose line God chose for the Messiah to come through. Uh, because if you back up, uh, you know, look what it says. It says, uh, and not only so, but also when Rebecca, this is in verse 10. Not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger as it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hate him. Um, the, you know, one of the things I brought up in one of my sermons was, yeah, there is a reality that like this God's choosing is not by bloodline, right? Like it's not, it is not, uh, purely by physical descent. And that's an important point, contextual point, because this is something that people in Paul's day would, would have said, right? Yeah. We, we are the physical descendants of Abraham. We are children of Abraham. Um, one of the things Paul's laying out is uh, that's not actually true. You're not actually children of Abraham. What, 
what Paul has laid out is actually counter to the very idea that this has to do purely with like uh, physical national descent, because he says not all Israel is Israel, mm. right? That's that's part of his whole point here, um, that uh, not all those who have the same physical descent are part of the same like uh, you know corporate national body, um, the same like they look the same outwardly. That is no guarantee that they have been chosen by God, right? And uh, the reason this matters in the course of his argument is because, again, if you go back, what's the main point? Like, has the word of God failed? No, right? The word of God has not failed, even though many in the outward corporate body of God's people seemingly have rejected him and been cut off from the truth. So, how you know, one of the ways that he uh, works that out is to say, look, it's not like even in the Old Testament, it's not by bloodline alone. But even before somebody can do good or bad, God chooses one of them, right? He, yeah. he chooses uh, one of them for that salvation. Now, uh, if you want to say, well, this is purely about, you know, who uh, the, who the, you know, uh, the Messiah messianic would come line. from, yep, yeah. where the messianic line was, um, how come Paul's answering why so many have been cut off from the gospel, right? right? He's, he's dealing with the question of why so many don't believe, right? And it's among those of whom he has just said that the Christ came from, right? He, he came from among them, right? right? He, he's saying, look, they're like that, that actually can't answer the question that Paul is arguing. And, yeah. And even if Paul knows what Malachi is teaching, Paul knows that Malachi, when he uses the terms, when he refers to Jacob and Esau, he is referring to nations. but Again, this is where one of the difficulties in all the New Testament is we often don't read the Old Testament the way they do. And this will be a thing that will come up almost on any subject we touch probably forever. Paul sees, I think Paul sees with, I mean, because he then goes back to their birth, right? Paul said, sees the teaching of Malachi. He goes back to where they were in the womb. Paul sees in that statement an implication about the individuals. Yep. And even if it seems as if Paul knows that it may not be clear that that statement was about judgment, it does totally affirm the position that he's already made. God is choosing before any has done anything good or bad, right? God is making that choice. And he says, that's why I think he goes on to make the point about Pharaoh. Yes. And I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. He takes it into an implic. He goes from my point is that God's choice is unconditional. It has nothing to do with the merits of an individual. That's what Jacob and Esau proves. Yep. His point they represent about that clearly. Yes. His point about Pharaoh indicates this is about fundamental mercy and judgment, right? He goes yep. on. Um, yeah, he builds he builds, he very clearly builds uh, upon it. Right. So I wish, I wish I knew, I guess we should just go on to the next part of the thread. Cause I think that we don't think it's about nations only. Also just to make it clear too, um, nations are made up of individuals. The choosing of some 
uh, corporately and not others corporately still includes the choosing and not choosing of individuals. It doesn't right. actually get you away from things. It just gives you a way to maybe feel better about what you're saying because you, like those Paul is talking to, want to say, wait a minute, that makes God unjust. And here's the reality. Like, you know, you can go and you can do the work on, you know, actually looking at what exactly these words mean. You know, God says, I have loved one. Well, what is, what is Paul just been saying about the love of God? Right. Okay. Um, so think about that. Number two, um, you know, what it means that uh, Esau, I hate it. Okay. But the word for, you know, this idea of hate, this is not simply I hated, meaning I didn't choose him to bear the, like the line of the Messiah. Okay. This is, this is actually far deeper than that. Um, it means much more. This has a lot more connotations of judgment and wrath. And now, like we said, Paul builds on it. He, he adds mm -hmm. to it and he says, let's go a little bit deeper, right? Let's go deeper into what this looks like. And, and sure the, the, now I, if you read, if you read Genesis as God hating Esau, it's a pretty easy case to see how bad things just go for him. And now he's, he's responsible. He's wicked. He makes wicked decisions. And, and it is, there is a, uh, you know, it has a, a happyish ending, right. With him reconciling with Jacob, but what Genesis wants you to take away from that reunion does is actually the part of the story. Paul isn't picking up on he's picking up on their birth. Right. That's that is what he's picking up on. Not well, his their, birth, yeah, right. Their birth and what God says about them even before they're born. Right. So let's go on to the next argument, because, again, we're not going to cover, as you might know, if you're familiar with this, many of these arguments have went on for uh, hundreds of years. And so we're not going to be able to answer every possible angle. But so the next part of his thread says this. So he's. So when he's talking about the context of I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The context is why has God left Israel in their hardened state and allowed the Gentiles to come to faith? God did like God did with Pharaoh. He allowed Israel and Pharaoh to persist in their already existing rebellion. It was an act of judgment, not a random unconditional decision. He turned them over to what they genuinely wanted, to do their own thing. God hardens after the person has given themselves over to wickedness. And so that is another, that's one of his other um, quotes. I, that is an interesting quote. It's in quotations. He's quoting someone on this, um, that God hardens after the person has given themselves over to wickedness. So I will say if anywhere um, flame uh, falls a little bit, uh, you can see where he's a little, he's, he's grinding a little bit of an ax with Calvinism. I'll let pastor Michael tell me about if if this deals with uh, how this, we should read this. The point is where you see him grinding his ax. It's where he says it wasn't a random unconditional decision. No Calvinists, even if we disagree with other parts, none of us think this was a random that God just, that God has no good purpose. God has no will. God has no uh, plan he's working out. Yeah. In... So let's, let's actually deal with that. I want to, I basically want to defend flame as much as possible because, yeah. uh, because there are many, especially cage sage Calvinists that basically this is where, like what they think, right? Like they, they do see things as some kind of weird fatalism and that like God's choosing is 
basically arbitrary. I had somebody on Twitter say that recently, actually, and I never responded. I, I meant to respond. I think I forgot to respond back when I had the chance. Uh, but, you know, something about like, yeah, like they somebody I just remember somebody using the word arbitrary to talk about God's mm-hmm. election. There's wow. nothing arbitrary about it. this. Right. Is, it, it's literally what Paul says, right? God's purpose of election. There is there is purpose and intention. And actually, we're going to see um, in in many form one of those purposes in the story of Pharaoh. Um, not just his purpose in election, but like his purpose in election of mercy for some, but also in his purpose of election of judgment for others. Um, we're going to see why exactly this takes place. Paul explains that. And, and, and let me say, so when he says this is about judgment, not something unconditional here, it is about judgment, but this is the, the problem is you actually can't break it from God's unconditional purpose. And here's why. So, He quotes Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. So the problem with that is, what does Paul, Paul says, again, it's almost like he knows these kinds of questions are going to arise. Paul says, if it is a, if this is a purely responsive action by God that we're talking about. It would have to depend on human will or exertion. Now, again, I would assume the hatch, the escape hatch, is that it depends not on keeping the law or not, would be the, would be the assumption. But, but it just seems so, it follows so tightly that he is saying this mercy God has. So we've already said God has chosen Jacob and not Esau based on his own, his own purposes before they were ever born. Yep. Not according to works. It's before they're born. They're in the womb. It specifically says before they could do either good or evil before they could do anything, right? They, they didn't accomplish anything. They didn't do anything. And also it's not, uh, Paul is returning to the patriarchs before the Mosaic law comes into play, right? Right. Like this is, uh, this is going back even further again, just like he did with Abraham to say, there's something about this story that teaches us uh, about God's plan of election, how he does choose some and not others. And he will work this out later in 10 and 11. He, when he, the quotation he gives about Pharaoh is, so if this is an act of judgment, not primarily based on human exertion, he says for this purpose, he said, this is what God said to Pharaoh, for this purpose, I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So the, the thing Paul is picking up on that he's about to go further into, which flame interacts with, which will give us a great opportunity is why is God's word not failed? Because I even have a purpose in those I'm withholding mercy from. Yep. And, and, and if you think about your familiarity with Romans 10, Romans 11, Paul is going to get to what might God's purpose have been in his people reject their rejection of the Messiah. He's saying God, God indeed shows mercy to those he desires and withholds it from those he desires because he has a purpose in it. Yep. Right. Which makes sense of the original context. And, and it's not a, and that's not really very good news for Pharaoh. God, this purpose is not the best news. 
Yeah. And it, I mean, so this actually, I mean, this is, you, you get this right out of Romans nine itself. You don't even have to go um, past Romans nine. You get a fuller picture if you keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, you know, we jump down and we, we learn about God working um, like a potter. And by the way, I don't remember him mentioning this. Um, you know, he kind of uh, jumps over this part a little bit um, yeah. about the reality that God is like a, a potter with clay. And that is to teach us um, about how God works in the cases of somebody like Pharaoh, which by the way, Pharaoh is an individual. Right. Once again, once again, like individual. The, so he is another individual. Um, and in this time it's like, he is an actual, like an individual, <laughs> like he, uh, you might be able to say, well, in Malachi, Jacob and Esau are standing in for others. Well, in this case, Pharaoh was an individual, uh, and he is the one that God hardens. Um, and why does he harden some, right? So, um, this is, uh, you know, uh, verse 21 has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God desiring to show his wrath? So go back to the idea of hated, by the way, not just, I'm not choosing you to bear the messianic line. When you actually read this contextually, see what what's happening with flame is he's, he's picking and choosing. He's doing the same thing that he's calling out in others. And I think like we said, rightfully so, rightfully Mm -hmm. so calling out in others, but then he does the same thing. If you want to say that, you know, uh, Esau hated just has to do with, well, he didn't choose the Edomites. Well, you, that doesn't make sense then with, as he builds upon that, he's speaking about God's wrath upon some, some uh, rather than on others. So what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that purpose, there's a purpose statement, right? In order that there's, there's, there's intent, there's purpose in that, in his wrath, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called. Uh, this is, uh, you know, if you go back, by the way, again, again, those of us whom he has called, uh, if you go back to when it's talking about Jacob and Esau, it talks about that calling, right? This is in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, right? So this, it's, it's tight, right? It's, it's, it's all one thing, Jacob and Esau, what God did in Pharaoh and Israel, what God is now doing in Paul's day with those who have believed the gospel and those who have rejected it. It's all the same. It's all one story. It's all God working. What he's saying is God's word has not failed because behind all of this, behind the veil, God is working out his purpose of election. And you might not know the individual cases, why some are chosen, some are not. But on the grand scale of things, we know because of what the scripture has revealed for us, we know that God is working these things out in order to make known his wrath and power and in order to show forth his mercy um, and the riches of his mercy. Think about the story of Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh is hardened. And what does that lead to? It leads to the Exodus, right? It leads to um, this grand picture of what Christ was yet to do the saving of the people out of slavery in Egypt and bringing them out. And it brings them out into Canaan, right? It brings them out of Egypt into the rest of the world. And and pastor Michael can vouch for how perhaps hard of a Calvinist I am, right? I'm a guy at a reformed seminary. He said, sometimes my professors seem a little, uh, a little loose on this. And I I live (laughs) in a good seminary. But I want to even say, and I know this might just sound like rhetoric, and so I'm sorry if it does. I think my flesh still fights against the idea that 
God has the right to use people however he desires as their maker for his better purpose. I think my flesh is still like, can you, can I, like, it's still yeah. like, oh, I, I'm a little short of breath here. Like, but, and maybe there's a place for application on that later. But I, I, I just think that it is, if you, if you hear that and you feel that way, I think it is unsurprising. I just want you to know, that's why I'm saying this is yeah. not because I'm trying to be, you know, not because I'm trying, not, I'm not really trying to be winsome, even if it feels that way. It just, right. I think it is something so against the grain and it yep. is precisely the reason Pharaoh hated it. Pharaoh hated Moses's message like this. Yeah. Pharaoh was, Pharaoh's was my will determines all. And he is the, he is the supreme example of that belief and the supreme example that no, it is not the human will that determines all. So yeah. Pastor Michael, you brought up the vessels. Uh, you brought up God as the potter. He does skip those verses, but he actually says your reading of the, the vessels of wrath, you're giving it a misreading. So let's let Flame again jump in. Um, Flame, again, we do think you, I, I hope you think we're being fair to you because we, we really do think your, your thread is reasonable. Now we disagree, obviously, but we do think like you are a, a well, this is a well done, this is a well done critique, even though we're going to differ on a lot. So he says, I wish my professor would have rightly taught us Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Was not teaching double predestination that god has made some for hell keeping in mind hell was created for the devil and his angels not for people matthew 25 41 a more careful read exposes what the text says has endured with much patience god is patient and enduring with those vessels of wrath that the text does not say god has prepared those uh sorry that that what he's saying is he's saying this is a point the text does not say God has prepared those vessels for wrath. It only says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and power endured with them? Does God want to show his wrath and power? Yes. Who prepared those vessels of wrath? The devil? The sinning person? Perhaps. But Paul does not say. It's silent on who prepared the vessels of wrath for destruction. But the whole of scripture credits the sinner and the devil for sinful rebellion. Let me say, uh, one thing about this that I will say as we point out things we appreciate, thank you, Flame, for making a, uh, agreeing with something I think most, I probably would not have agreed on had the first time I read Romans 9, God desires to show his wrath and power. That is something God does desire to do in the world, which again is an uncomfortable, maybe an uncomfortable truth, but God desiring to display all of who he is, part of who he is is wrath against evil and sin and he desires to show that that's part of his glory so pastor michael he says these vessels of wrath the primary thing god's doing is enduring with them we don't know who prepared them we don't know where these came from and hell this can't be about hell because hell was for the devil and his angels now i know even in my summary of that i've it's probably pretty problematic because i've just brought together like 
a different path. I brought together a few things that, you know, I'm now trying to serve to you. Right. Which is, again, is, does seem to work a bit against the contextual reading we're supposed to be trying here. Yeah, it does. And so, um, you know, a lot of what he says is like, if you were arguing with say a cage stage Calvinist, uh, like some we've heard who mm-hmm. might say things like, yeah, like people are just like robots. Um, maybe, a you know, a Mark Driscoll, uh, sure. you know, some of you are just match sticks anyway. Yep. Okay. Like that, like if you're arguing against that, um, sure. Like that, that is a misreading of like vessels of wrath. You know, that's not what vessels of wrath means. Maybe, you know, maybe you could, you could say, sure, there is a, there is a caricature that he might be arguing against that we also would at least not want to say, yeah, they got it right. Right. Um, however, he skips over the fact that, you know, these vessels of wrath, who's making these vessels for what purpose? Right. The, the analogy is that a potter is making the vessels for particular purposes, right. it, either honorable or dishonorable. And I, then you have those vessels of wrath and mercy that one is honorable, one is dishonorable. Who's making them? The potter. Who's the potter? It is God. And who it, are you, oh man, to question God? Yeah, I, I don't know how you escaped 20 and 21 immediately before this. You do. You just and but that's by the way, this is why he has to skip it. Because he cannot make, in what he is arguing, he cannot make sense of this. Now, let's pull back. Let's pull back. Yeah. Um, this does not teach that uh, the sinner is not responsible. Right. It, the, the sinner is responsible for their sin completely. Um, it is true that when the Bible condemns somebody for their sinful choices, it does not condemn God because they are responsible. Right. Pharaoh is responsible uh, for his rejection of the truth, even though uh, his hardening comes after God has made his plan known that this is what's going to happen. Um, Like it doesn't matter. Pharaoh is obviously still responsible. Esau is responsible. Um, This this idea, uh, it is a caricature, one that new Calvinists did not help. (laughs) Uh, it is a caricature, though, to say that because God is the primary cause of all things, um, therefore, there is no secondary cause, that there is right. there is nothing else happening. Uh, there's nothing else going on. There's no one else. Just because God um, is sovereign in every single thing does not mean that we don't have free choice in a certain sense. Um, it does mean that we don't have a kind of libertarian freedom where we just do whatever we want to do. And God can't step in because then we wouldn't be free, right? That's silly. It's not like a pie chart where, you know, we have, you know, 15% of the pie and God has the rest of the pie. No, it's like God is the pie, right? God is, God is the whole of it. He's within his freedom and choice and sovereignty. That is where we operate because we're creatures. We're not a creator. Um, This is not a yin yang situation. Um, this we're, we're not on the same level, you know, and this is where people go wrong because they make assumptions about what freedom and choice and responsibility and sin and all of this means as if we are autonomous individuals who just make choices. And, uh, like if God steps into that, then we're not actually making the choices. Well, that's, that's not the world that God has made. That's not how things actually operate. And we can go into that more in detail at some point, but to like, to stick with the text again, he has to skip over. The fact that the vessels of wrath that he's talking about are being made by God. Now, one of his points that I think is good is this idea of like saying, look, like he endures with patience those who are vessels of wrath. 
you're right that even in the vessels of wrath, God is making known certain yes. attributes about himself that are not primarily, uh, you know, anger and wrath, which are things that he wants to make known, but also his patience, his long suffering, even with those yes. he's, uh, who he's sin against slow him. to anger, even, That's even right. though he has a purpose in, right. He, he, he came with Moses to offer fair repentance 10 times. And I think pastor Michael, let me read the, just the very end of, of his, a few more of his, from his tweet thread, because I think the final thing we need to perhaps talk about is if we are double predestinarians, the yes. really bad, yeah, I was going to bring really, that up too. The really bad guys, <laughs> um, and so and we'll see how how similarly we would explain ourselves on that. Probably pretty similarly, but we'll we'll give it a try. Yet it does say explicitly that He God has prepared vessels of mercy beforehand. Romans nine twenty three in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God is actively doing one and not actively doing the other. Again, the context is salvation by faith, not by works. Addressing the question is why hasn't God brought all the Jews in, but gives his mercy to the Gentiles. He allows to Jews to stay in their rebellious state. Having said all that, Paul still has hope. Romans 10, one brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And in chapter 11, Paul confesses that Israel's rejection is not permanent, Romans eleven thirty two. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Yes, it's true there is universal condemnation under the law, and yet Paul notes it ends with universal grace for those who believe by faith. So he again kind of comes back to this idea, and he's brought it up a few times, of the issue of double predestination. Um, he again, I, I just, I think it's always interesting, right? It's not about predestination, but it's about God's choosing. Why hasn't God brought in all the Jews? He's allowing them to remain in a rebellious state. This is, this is, again, this is, this is why there's, there, you would say that there's, it's hard to know if there would ever be hope. It's, but there, it's like, there should be hope in, we, we are saying very similar things, even, even where we differ here. Yeah, it's uh, right. We have slightly different definitions, basically, um, in the end. But because it seems like Flame is trying to grapple with the text itself, which we're grateful for, um, we're thankful, like you said, it seems to be coming at this from a solid place. Um, He is actually dealing with what the text says, and you cannot get away from the language uh, that is more predestinarian, right? It is, it is, speaks of choosing, allowing, it's where God's action is primary and man's action is secondary. And we'd like to celebrate anyone who doesn't spend their whole discussion of Romans 9 just trying to avoid the exact language. Given That's right. Here. So we'd yeah. like to celebrate that. So, so Pastor Michael, are, are you a double predestinarian? Yeah. So, yes, um, I think you have to be with this text um, in this, in this we, sense. So this is where whatever again, we get down to the definition. Pastor Michael made with Lutheran, confessional Lutheran, <laughs> now he's consigned himself to know more French. But here's where, you know, like these things get, um, when you actually get into the discussion, a lot of times people, uh, their definitions and ideas about what things mean, this is where this actually matters, right? This is where, um, you know, systematics and actual careful uh, definitions and distinctions matter. Um, Especially when we are dealing with ultimate things 
Um, this is one of our, you know, uh, problems with, you know, uh, the YRR, New Calvinism, has been that it was so casual about how it spoke about many of these things, right? This was like, uh, you know, predestination was one of those things. It was like, you know, you got the next Pokemon card, right? Like the next theology card, predestination. Right. It's now one, of, like it's in my, it's in my deck and now I can use it just like anything else. The way Paul talks about these things is way more cautious, way more careful. Um, it, it is not something to be trifled with. And when we deal with ultimate, ultimate things, especially issues dealing with, say, God's secret purpose in election, um, theology works to help us uh, define around it. But ultimately, there are things that God has not revealed to us, right? There are, mm. So uh, when it comes to predestination, God has revealed the fact of predestination, but there are many uh, aspects to predestination and election that God has not directly revealed to us. And that means that we should come at this with an, a huge amount of humility mm. of recognizing uh, the place where we stand, that this is one of the things that I said multiple times while I was preaching through this was like, take off your shoes. This is holy ground. Like this is not, this is not uh, one of those uh, places where God has given something to us to do, right? Like there, mm. are, there are things um, when it comes to uh, the Christian life that God has commanded us to do, that he has uh, given to us, given to the church, uh, things for us to perform. This is not one of them. Right. This is all God. This is all about him who calls. This has nothing to do with you. And now maybe I'm the one who actually is going to cause us to lose friends. Dare I actually say it? Flame actually says something that is double predestinary. Yes, he does. He has the, to. The, <laughs> because he's working through the text. The, the thing he says that is predestinary, he says God is actively doing the one and not actively doing the other. What, what is he doing? He is creating honorable s vessels and dishonorable vessels yes. what flame i think is denying and i think perhaps i would say correctly you we're not going to do it here we're about to end our, this episode but if you read the westminster confession on on yes. election the, it does not use the same language for god's act of election unto eternal life and reprobation which is just another they're trying to not use the same term for this reason unto death but when he says God is doing one, but he doesn't do them in the same way, a hardcore Arminian, my friend, is going to tell you, well, that's just, you've just dressed up double predestination. Yep, that's a just bit. Calvinism again. Yeah. And, and again, you're like, well, they're not very biblical. Well, we agree. That's why we were attracted by the YRR. <laughs> um, but the, the issue is, is that what you're denying is what I think is pretty much commonly called equal ultimacy. Yes. And that's, God, this is where I was going to get that God's act of election is the exact same as his act of, of not election. And that God does not in the same way that he elects to heaven, elect to hell. So I'll let pastor Michael perhaps leave it here because this is the YRR. This is helpful for you. This is a, this is a, this is a helpful corrective on, on everything because perhaps the cage stage straw man almost became equal ultimacy. Yeah. And I think in many circumstances, that's exactly what happened. And so uh, when we say we believe in double predestination, we believe it because the scripture teaches it, but the scripture does not teach. Even reading Romans nine, the way that God speaks of the vessels of wrath 
and the vessels of mercy is not the exact same, but it right. is the same enough that he is the ultimate one behind all of it, right? I mean, he's right. the potter. Um, he is the one that is choosing these things ultimately. And so, um, and it's before anybody can choose to do good or evil, right? Pre- it, it is before they are born. And Pre- so just- that's where we want to like, you know, um, this is where having a, a humility when you approach the text mm. and wanting to like read it within the, its context is necessary and important. And then you want to be able to take things with more than just that one category, right? Mm. Oh, yep. God predestines. Yes. Like that's true and right and good. And it's when we heard that for the first time, we were like, oh my goodness, somebody said it. It's in the Bible and right. they said it. But it's more than that, right? That's like you've now entered into, I've, I've maybe used this analogy before, but like at that point, you're like, you've entered into the mud room of the house. You've been standing out in the garage, right? In this, like, it's kind of, it's Christian, but we don't really want to talk about it like the Bible does. Okay. Now you've, you've come into the mud room and you're like, wow, this is awesome. Hey, everybody come in here. And then you don't recognize, Hey, there's another door. There's a lot more here, right? There's a lot more going on. And what Paul is arguing than that. It's not just individual. It's also corporate. It's not just, uh, it's not just about predestination in Romans nine. It's about a lot more than that. Mm. And Paul is setting something up where yes, like vessels of wrath are tied to Esau are tied to Pharaoh. And he's also then now tying Israel to Egypt, something that is done throughout the new Testament, even in the gospels that Israel in the days of Christ had become in many ways, the new Egypt, right? Mm. They had become, um, the, the new, uh, you know, kind of evil empire in a sense, the new Babylon, uh, as well. And Paul is riffing on those very ideas and bringing them all together all at once <laughs> as right. he like, just like uh, unpacks the, the, the beauty and, and the glory, which is the fact that God's word does not fail. It does not fail. Even when it looks like it has, even when many have rejected the gospel, it does not fail because behind it all, God is at work working out his own purposes, just like in Egypt, Israel left Egypt and then went out into uh, Canaan. And uh, the, you know, the, the light to the nations was as it was supposed to be and did not, uh, you know, supposed to be in the sense that, you know, had the, the command to be. Um, Israel did not actually fulfill that because it was meant to be fulfilled ultimately in Christ. Uh, but what happens here too? The hardening of Pharaoh led to the leaving from Egypt of God's people, uh, the same thing was going to happen in the first century. The same thing happened where, uh, you know, Israel was hardened. And what does that lead to? Read the book of Acts. The hardening of Israel and the persecution that follows because of it leads to the, the outpouring of the gospel out into the nations. Because why? God has patiently waited with vessels of wrath, those who were already vessels of wrath that he had intended for that purpose from the beginning but he had patiently uh, waited with them so that his mercy could be made known all the more, right? The, the, mm. the, the emphasis, Flame is right to put the emphasis upon the riches of God's mercy because that is the emphasis of the text. Uh, but it also is not okay to then diminish what else is said about the vessels of wrath. It's, it's like the predestination it's a category where we're talking about God as the ultimate cause of all things. When we talk about his works of election, reprobation, or as I called it, equal ultimacy, we're talking about what, in what way does God act 
towards. Yes. And now again, because we're talking about God's acts in eternity, yes, tons of humility is needed. Oh, right. Do, do not run in here like I did at 18 and rewrite the song, Jesus loves me to Jesus elected me, right? That was not a good move on my part. Um, but what, and, and, and let me just give one simple example and then Pastor Michael, you can close if there's any, anything else you think of is how can we understand how God's acts towards the elect and the non-elect differ? Well, let's just use the picture of him giving mercy and not giving mercy. God, you know, if you give someone a gift, the choice to not give other people that gift is not the same kind of action. It is a more active and passive action. Now, there might be more, but the intention is, even though you are acting towards the people you do not give this to, the intention is towards what Pastor Michael has already emphasized, this increase of grace and mercy throughout the world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, these, this is the reason we want to go here is because this is where the scripture places the emphasis. Um, it does not, though, diminish the other things the scripture teaches. And this right. is where maybe it's good to leave it. Like, hopefully you've seen in this, um, what we want is with flame, we want a contextual reading, right? We want, we want you to see the, the full picture of how Romans 9 to 11 fits within the rest of Romans, as well as how, you know, these texts about uh, election and reprobation um, fit within the overall flow of, of chapters 9 to 11 in themselves, um, as well as in the rest of scripture. Um, but you need to do that uh, carefully. And uh, for Flame, we would say, hey, we want you to keep going right? Like we, we want you to not just see the problem in how you were taught this text, uh, but now see the problem in how you're arguing it, which is in many ways uh, the same. You're, you're leaving some things out um, for the reason that it doesn't really fit with what you want to talk about, with what you want to uh, make sense of. For those of you listening who are maybe more uh, influenced by uh, the, you know, why our new Calvinism, uh, this, is a, this is a great reminder that the text of scripture is not it is not revealed to us so that you can win a theological argument. It, it, this is the word of God. It is full. It is rich. It is life-giving. It is, it, it is full of meaning. And once you read it and say, well, this is about predestination and just move on. Well, you're not actually coming to the text as the revealed word of God. And so we want you to do that too. So there's something for all of us to learn. We can all learn. We can all get along. We can sit at the table together and hash this out sometime. Uh, but hopefully it was of benefit to you. Well, thanks for listening to the Restless Podcast today. We're going to have to close our this episode as I now have a baby with me who heard the end of our episode. So please do us all the favor, those who may soon have new babies, me who has a baby on my lap, rate and review the show. Find us on Patreon for more great content. Don't forget to go to therestlesspodcast.com. Uh, this is our new website and we have a store. You can buy some merch, support the show, um, buy some merch, go to the Patreon, get some exclusive content. Maybe we're going to talk a little bit more uh, about this text and what it has to say about the need for Presbyterianism, but we will get to that another time.